Thank you for tuning into Holistic Finance, where we promote financial balance and financial health. Our mission is to simplify your finances so you can focus on your practice and enjoy life. Now here are your hosts, Ryan Burklow and Alex Collins. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Holistic Finance. I am your host, Ryan Burklow. With me, as always, Alexander Bradley Collins. Yes, uh, thank you, Ryan. Appreciate the introduction. That's his full name. You can Google him now. <laughs> uh, so today's conversation, we've had podcasts now, we've, I think maybe two of them, where we've brought up emergency funds, emergency reserves, liquidity, short-term bucket, a couple different concepts here. Let's actually dive into giving some background on what we mean by this stuff. Yeah. So that's today's conversation around, and we're going to look at the personal and the business side, because in the end, the two always come together at at some shape or some way, shape or form. So let's dive, let's start with the personal side, Alex. So emergency reserve, and let me define emergency reserve. We need to come up with a better name, by the way, because emergency, everyone goes negative right away. Um, Opportunity fund, let's call it that. Um, Sure, savings. (laughs) Simple words. Um, So on the personal side, we want to have excess cash sitting in an account that we can access uh, where we don't have to pay fees, a bunch of taxes, penalties, and it's not heavily invested in the market because we don't want the emotional side to come into whether or not we should sell or not. Well, it's not, we don't want it to be invested in any market. I think you were referencing the stock market there, but we really don't want it tied to any particular market because we don't want that fluctuation on the downside. We Hey, we'll take all the fluctuations on the upside, but we don't want any fluctuation on the downside, whether it's the real estate market, the bond market, the stock market, uh, Etc. We don't want any fluctuation in this account because that would give us a reason to not access it whenever we needed it. We'd have to have pause and think about: Do we really want to take this money? And that—that's the whole goal of this: is for it to be there, twenty-four-seven, three hundred and sixty-five days, no fees, no penalties, little to no cost to access any of it. So, on the personal side, what we recommend is six to 12 months of expenses sitting in a liquid account. Which is, yes, absolutely, Ryan. And the reason why it's a variation there is because it depends upon the person's situation. The more stable their income is, we're more comfortable getting closer to six months. The less stable their income is, we're probably going to want it to be closer to 12 months. Yeah, so depending on where you're at in your practice... Right earlier on, you probably were going to want a little bit more cash sitting aside because the income is fluctuating. Right, we've talked to some people that actually want to have, and we would recommend having, upwards of two years worth of reserves. Right, so we're we're just kind of talking like almost minimums, if you will, of looking at it. So that's on the personal side, and we're going to get to why we're suggesting that, what you can do with it here in a minute. On the business side. This gets a little bit more tricky just because on, on the business side, you know, let's just face it, especially when you're first starting out, like 
you may not be making enough money to have an emergency fund or opportunity fund sitting there. But ideally, what are we looking at having there, Alex? Uh, there, it's it's much more dependent upon the the actual situation that the the business is in. And there, we typically want to make sure that we've got two to three months worth of revenue coming in the door. Heaven forbid there's some sort of disruption, whether it's uh, an issue that pops up with medical billing. And so we don't wind up having medical billing occur for a couple years or a couple months, rather not a couple years, a couple months. Um, if there's, you know, some new regulation that pops up or something that, that causes some issues or some hiccups with the way in which your cash flow is working, uh, the more, again, consistent and systematic it is, the further down we're getting with that number. Two months is a safe number. You know what that does is it allows us to have the ability to, you know, have a decent cash burn and at the same time still survive. So. You and I have spoken to, to many of our clients around these numbers, and the, the personal side, I think, gets uh, more um, arguments, let's just use that word, from our clients than the business side, just because they understand the business-wise, there's more fluctuation there, and there's more need for that, that two to three months, and it's not 12 months. And they also see more opportunity there of the, the ability to either expand, get a new location, a new piece of equipment, you know, things of that nature that are going to be used to expand the business, hiring staff, et cetera. And like, it becomes very, very easy to understand the reasons why. On the personal side, it, it, we do get the arguments and that's because, you know, six to 12 months of expenses is a bigger number on the personal side. And most people understand, you know, the three to six months, which I think is generally the rule that it's probably more heard out there for the oh crap scenario where you lose your job or something's occurring, we get a pull for, from it to, to pay it off or, you know, whatever negative that comes out there, which is off. That's why it's called an emergency fund. Typically, it's, it's, it's classified with a negative instance. We look at it from just a cash flow opportunistic leveraging instance and the argument that we will get from most people is well i don't want a hundred thousand dollars sitting in my savings account getting 0, 0.0 as a rate of return yeah I, and i totally understand that line of thinking when i first started my career but i didn't want dollars to sit idle the concept of idle dollars I, was massively negative to me from a standpoint of, I want my money working hard for me, not sitting there idly when it could be getting a better rate of return. So let's talk about some of these leverage points. We've got four leverage points that we're going to discuss around having a decent amount of cash sitting around. And the first one is when it comes to investing or just the emotions that come into money conversations in general, the more cash that you have sitting around, when the market is going up and down, let's let's use the stock market for now as the example. As the market is going up and down, it it doesn't affect you as much because all of your money is not sitting there. You've got a hundred thousand dollars sitting in in your account that you know you can access at any given point, which helps you actually ride the ride of the stock market. So you can actually keep your money in the market when it does come down. Exactly, it allows you to be to be the investor that you want to be, to 
eliminate emotion and fear and concern over the volatility because you've got that cushion sitting there that isn't going to fluctuate, that isn't going to go away. And it allows you to, to a large extent, ignore the fluctuations that are going on in the market. Now, we don't want to completely ignore them. We're not suggesting that you become an ostrich and bury your head in the sand. It's important to make sure that we've got the, the proper portfolio for folks, but we don't want to break strategy. Yeah, I mean, what, what you're getting at is we don't want to make rash decisions. And when we don't have a bunch yeah. of money sitting in cash, we make rash decisions. That's As human beings, like we're just emotional creatures. You and I, Alex, even though we know all the stuff, we still make emotional decisions. And so when we've got a cash sitting around, it allows us to actually take a step back and say, okay, let's, let's look at this before I make that decision to get out of the market. When it gives you that sense of comfort to be able to, to do that, exactly what you're talking about, Ryan, taking a step back and analyzing it instead of having that just knee-jerk reaction of, I've got to do it and I've got to do it now. So just that alone, if you can stay, like Dalbar did a study and I forget what the exact numbers are, but the point of the, the study was they're analyzing what does the average investor get in the market? And the point of the study is people pull their money in and out of the market. And when you miss just a couple days of being invested, and if it's the couple best days that year, you lose out on huge, the return that everyone else got. And so having that cash sitting there allowed you to stay invested. So if we're talking even just a 1% difference by having cash sitting there <laughs> on the rest of your money, we're talking a lot of money, like 1% over a 30 year time horizon is not chump change. No, it winds up being a huge, huge amount of, of value that's being added there just by allowing yourself to, to stick to, to the strategy that you selected. So leverage one, emotions in check. Number two, opportunities, right? This is, and this might be the, one of the bigger ones out there when you have cash laying around, like everyone has heard of the line, I think, cash is king. Well, why do they say that? It's because it allows you the freedom and flexibility, the choice to take on opportunities and advantages that, that pop up from time to time. Now, I've got a, a close personal friend who had a bunch of cash sitting on the sidelines when the Great Recession hit in 2008. And wound up being able to use those dollars to massive effect buying things at extreme discounts as a result of simply having cash. And the, the reason the, the Great Recession occurred was just a massive lack of liquidity. People wound up leveraging themselves as much as possible. And then whenever bad things occurred, you know, they'd have margin calls and they'd get stopped out of, of loans and, and would wind up going into default on a bunch of stuff because they didn't have the proper amount of liquidity. Yeah, I mean, an exact example of that, going back to 2008, as an ND, I'm running a practice, I'm thinking about possibly buying the rental property that I'm renting from, I wanna own it, or maybe I wanna buy another practice, right? When the real estate market crashed, and if I have a bunch of cash sitting around, that could have been a really great time for me to actually buy the property that I'm renting, and now I'm paying myself the rent. Absolutely. Perfect example, Ryan. Or if another practice is going out of business, I can, or retiring, whatever the instance is, now I have cash to buy that practice again 
more cash flow coming back to me. Well, and, and having the ability to simply stroke the check versus having to go to a bank and try and finance it, especially at a time of upheaval like 2008, early 2009, even getting into 2010, banks were really holding tight to money. Oh, I had a, a couple clients that would pay down their lines of credit and then have the bank lower their line of credit. Like, it, it really just was counterproductive to what they were trying to do. And that type of thing was very common in that in that time frame back in like 2008, 2009, 2010 time frame. So opportunities is number two in terms of leveraging that cash sitting there. Number three, we're going to call it kind of creating your own bank, right? There are investment products out there or just investment vehicles where you're essentially sitting in cash for the most part. And you can now leverage that money sitting there to essentially help dictate the terms of maybe getting a loan to buy another practice or, or whatever's coming up, uh, whatever's happening at that point. And so an example of this is, if I have $500,000 sitting in, let's just call it cash for now, I can now possibly go to a bank because I could just fund the loan myself. Like if the property I'm trying to buy is 500, well, guess what? I've got the cash. Now that may not be the best uses of my cash. Maybe it makes more sense for me to go get a loan and I'm making up numbers here at two, three, three and a half percent and then just pay my pay that loan dictate uh, loan amount strictly because I have the $500,000 sitting there. Well, and it, it puts you in a much better negotiating position with the bank because it gives the bank a big, warm, fuzzy feeling of, hey, this person's doing it right. They've got a whole bunch of liquid cash. If the crap hits the proverbial fan, there's an asset there that's not going to move, that's not going to fluctuate, that can easily be be used to help repay the bank. And it, it, so it's going to give you a better interest rate. It's going to give you better terms on the loan. It's going to give you more negotiating power. And like, you're now in control because you've got the ability to d decide, yeah, I want to finance 100% of it, or I want to finance 50% of it, or I want to finance 0% of it. You've got the ability to, to decide. Choose. Yeah. Right back to our controller controllables. Again, this is something you can control and the flexibility in that. How cool would it be to have those options? And if the bank comes back and says, we want to have a 10% interest on it, tell them, yeah, peace out. I've got the money. I don't need that. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Right. So collateralizing the cash is really what we're, we're discussing in that instance. So you can kind of create your own bank strictly because you've got the cash sitting there. Yeah, you've got the ability to, to pick and choose how you use it, whether you collateralize it, whether you simply use it to put yourself in a stronger position and go get a more traditional loan, or whether you pull out and use some of the cash from, from that structure, uh, however it is you know put together. So that's leverage point number three. And then the last one is, is around retirement cash flows. We, the leverage points we've discussed thus far, early in your working years or when you're building the business, even having the cash in retirement allows flexibility to oftentimes provide a higher net cash flow in retirement. Yeah, I mean, if we take a look at the, the major tax avoidance strategies, the existence of a whole lot of dollars in that, that savings bucket, the you know, cash or cash equivalent bucket that we're talking about, 
allows you the ability to do things differently with your other dollars. And you know, those can help you leverage the tax situation. They can help you with uh, choices on when and where you take income from, how you go about taking that income. Again, it, it opens up a world of choices. And one of the things that we've consistently talked about is controlling the controllables and having balance. You know, in an ideal world, we get to retirement with roughly a third of your money sitting in this type of a savings vehicle that's not dependent upon the the market, the stock market, the bond market, the real estate market, that's just consistently growing. It's the the tortoise that wins the race just by being slow and steady. And in this particular situation, it's not just slow and steady. It's also all of the other things that it allows you to do with the rest of your dollars. Yeah. I mean, in the traditional retirement plan, and you can't like, I'm doing quotation marks right now as if you can see me. I'm doing air quotes, air quotes. Exactly. In the traditional retirement plan, oftentimes it might be like an interest only approach. So I don't know if you've heard of the 4% rule and I'm speaking to you, the listeners, the the 4% rule is built on a philosophy of you can take 4% with inflation from your nest egg with a low risk of outliving your money. Correct. The, and when you're doing that, there's taxation on the growth of your money or as you're pulling the money out, depending on where it's sitting. And oftentimes that's one of the higher tax strategies out there. It produces the highest form of tax. The only exception to that would be if the money's coming out of a vehicle that is tax-free by nature, such as a Roth IRA, a Roth 401k, you know, outside of that, it, it's all going to show up as earnings and growth, which is the highest form of taxation in our country. And real quick, for those of you who don't, the 4% rule, think of it this way. When you get to retirement, how many years will you be in retirement? In other words, and I hate to say it this way, when are you going to die? Like, how long does your money have to last? No one knows that answer, which is why oftentimes it gets to an interest-only type of approach because if the market's still fluctuating and your money's still in the market, oftentimes you've toned back your risk, so you might be getting you know a lower rate of return, 3 4 5%. So if, you took, if you're getting 3 4 5% in the market and you're taking 7 or 8%, you're depleting your asset and you're depleting it quickly, which means you might outlive your money. It means you will outlive your money. It's a question of when you run out, not if depending on what the market does, correct. The 4% rule is, well, if you're in a uh, conservative portfolio and you take 4% with inflation purposes, the chances are lower of outliving your money, which is where this came came about. So I just want to explain the 4% rule before we... Yeah, well, it, it, it typically assumes a rate of return between 6 and 7 There's been a ton of research out there done into what a safe withdrawal rate is, there's a lot of questions about the with the current interest rate environment being a relatively low interest rate environment and having us having been in a low interest rate environment now for what a decade decade and a half um, I mean if we go back to even the 2000s interest rates on homes were still incredibly low for the vast majority of of the 2000s leading up to the the great recession and so as a result there's this concern that well, is fixed income or bonds 
really going to carry portfolios the way in which it used to. I mean, heck, if you retired in you know the early 80s, you were getting a double-digit rate of return from a bond. <laughs> I'd like to have that now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you go get a CD that was offering around 10%. You know, unfortunately, those days are, are long gone. And if you think about it from a standpoint of having been able to save, say, a million dollars, if you're able to generate a 10% rate of return from that, living on just the interest, well, that's a $100,000 a year income stream. That's not too bad. Yeah, and nowadays that that's not there. And bonds are kicking off like 1.9%, like two. two. So back to leveraging. The, the cash. So now that we understand the 4% rule, if we've got a third of our money sitting in, in, in a vehicle where it's just to your point, steady Eddie getting like two or 3% growth in there, it allows you because that's sitting in the background of your portfolio, it allows you to do other things with the, the other money in the market possibly. And you won't necessarily worry as much about, about outliving your money because you've got a stack of cash that you haven't touched for the last 15, 20, 25, 30 years in retirement. So imagine getting to retirement with 300 grand sitting in cash, and then it's grown to 600 grand in 30 years. Yeah, the other component to that is the reason why we'd look at a safe withdrawal rate being, say, 4% when we're assuming a 6 to 7% rate of return is because we need to account for pulling dollars out in those down years. So if you start out with a million dollars, you pull out $40,000 and the market goes down 10%, you're not just down the $40,000, you're down $40,000 plus the 10% on top of that. And so that's why you can't pull out as much as you're earning. And so we need the, the ability for the market to come back and things of that nature to, to create this quote unquote safe withdrawal rate. Well, if we've got this pool of money that's sitting here, and the you know the downside being that it's sitting idle. Well, when we come across these down years, instead of pulling money out of investments that are in the stock market, real estate market, or bond market that have been negatively affected by whatever the market downturn is, um, then we can forego selling at an inopportune time and be able to spend some of the cash during those years and allow the market, again, whether it's the stock market, bond market, or real estate market, to come back before selling. And so that prevents a lot of the, the downside volatility and the, the negative aspects of it. Now, the flip side of that coin is we've really got to believe in the strategy. And if we run into another you know time period like 2000, 2001, 2002, where we've got three years in a row where the stock market's down and down dramatically, we really got to believe in the strategy. So quick recap here, Alex, uh, we've got the argument is having too much money sitting in cash, I won't be getting a good rate of return on that money, I'd rather put it elsewhere. And by the way, we're not stating that all of your money should sit in cash, just want to make sure we're being clear <laughs> about that. But we are making a point to state how you leverage that money allows you to get not necessarily more return, but more cash flow, more opportunities, emotional mindset, all of the above, because you have that cash sitting there. So one, emotional mindset to stay invested in the market, the stock market or whatever market. Number two, opportunities 
that may land in your lap. We don't know what those opportunities are. Whether it's business related, real estate related, heck, even just you know having the stock market drop 20, 30, 40% and choosing to deploy some of the cash at that point. Number three, creating your own bank, being able to collateralize that so you can have your money work harder for you. Well, and having the, the choice around when and how you leverage other people's dollars. Yep. And then number four, retirement cash flow. Those are huge four leverage points that are quite strong against a rate of return only type conversation. And by the way, we're not saying that you shouldn't think about the rate of return. It's more if you to look at all of your money and we're just talking about the, the short-term bucket. Yeah, what's the rate of return of the overall strategy that you're employing? And this is one component of it. You know, we're, we're talking about leverage here. And I mean, this is roughly about a third of where folks should have their money when they get to retirement. Now, ahead of time, yeah, we might front load this bucket. This might be one of the first places that we put dollars. And we ultimately want to have roughly about a third of our money here. We can't have, to your point, Ryan, 100% of our dollars here because then we don't have the other two buckets to be able to leverage. We only have these dollars. That's the biggest, I'm going to say it, issue that I think oftentimes people don't consider is they hear something and they compare it to the entire portfolio or the entire strategy, which... I could make a strong argument that they don't even know what their strategy is. They just think they're putting a bunch of money in the market and they hope the market works out. In the end, we're, we're talking about that one bucket where this isn't all of your money. So make sure you're analyzing your, your entire financial picture from a holistic viewpoint, hence the name of the podcast, <laughs> rather than a siloed only manner or an apples to oranges approach, which most people look at. Yeah, it's all about creating financial balance and not getting too heavy in any one particular product, structure, component, tactic, etc. So we hope today's podcast was valuable. Uh, please share it if you feel that uh, it spoke to you and you got something out of it, because I guarantee you if you're thinking about something or something we mentioned you've never thought of, You've got to probably have some friends that are thinking the exact same thing and that this could be very helpful to them. So appreciate your time and hope you have a good rest of your day. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Quantified Financial Partners, and opinions stated are their own. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. All investment and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Ryan and Alex are registered representatives and financial advisors at Park Avenue Securities, LLC, OSJ 3585 Maple Street, number 140, Ventura, California, 909-399-1100. Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. 
financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Quantified Financial Partners is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. Number 2019-85861, expiration 09-2021.